Hi everybody. Um, this week's episode is Fargo, um, the Coen Brothers film from 1996, spawned a really good TV show. If you haven't watched the TV show either, I've seen the first three seasons. I haven't seen season four yet, but that's awesome as well. So if you're a fan of the movie and you haven't seen the show, watch both. If you haven't seen the film, watch the film for sure. Especially if you like Coen Brothers. It's uh, it's classic. And obviously, again, it goes without saying, spoilers galore. Um, so if you haven't seen the film and you don't want spoilers, then pause the podcast, go watch the film, and then listen to the podcast. But so far, I haven't had any kickback from people about spoilers. So I'm assuming no one gives a shit. <laughs> anyway, let's get the show on the road. Fargo time. Just first things first, with the uh, the opening of the film that they do, they have the um, the text that appears on screen saying this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Which I'm pretty sure is a lie. <laughs> I don't. I'm pretty sure I heard somewhere that um, it's a completely fictitious you know, story and characters and everything. None of it actually happened. But it's such a great way to get the audience invested in what's, you know, what they're about to see. Um, you know, yeah, and if and if it is true, then, you know, again, it still works as a, a method to get you invested in in what you're about to about to watch. But it's fun anyway. It just just seems to sort of make it a bit more real. So there's a great establishing shot early on for the sort of opening credit sequence where we just have the, the nice sort of calm music and the screen's completely white and then you slowly start to see things um, appear. You know, there's a bird flying, a car in the distance, a fence post on the side, but all of it is quite sort of distorted by the, the bright blinding white of the, the snow. So straight away, the audience is well aware that we're in a very cold, you know, North American place um and then as the car that's in the distance pulls closer to the screen uh the music gets a bit more climactic um it's just a nice sort of simple way to get the audience going like okay well what we, what's going on here what are we about to see what's gonna happen um and then also you know like, like i said as well establishing the sort of uh, very sparse but snowy landscape that they're in. Simple stuff, but it's it's important to establish where your story is set. Like the Coen brothers, they are the masters of the subtle art of filmmaking, right? So we get the opening scene where um, William H. Macy's character goes to meet... Um, what's his bloody name? Steve Buscemi and uh, Peter Stormer. Is it Stormer? How do you pronounce? I can't remember how you pronounce his name, but they're both, they're all three of them phenomenal actors. Um, so they're the crooks, basically. And uh, he walks into the bar to meet them. A lot of the, where, I suppose, um, William H. Macy, despite the fact that he's hiring these crooks to do something a bit untoward, he's more the protagonist in this scene than those crooks are. So a lot of the shots on him are already either like mediums or close ups. If you've listened to previous pods, you've heard me talk about the difference between those things. Not going to go into it again. 
Whereas where the other two are crooks, um, you know, they're a bit secretive in what they do. You know, they don't want to be um, out and about really obvious in, in their, you know, in their day-to-day things because they're criminals. So the shots on them initially are more like wides or, um, you know, sort of like not quite mediums, a bit bit wider than a medium, but maybe not quite a wide. And it's normally both of them in shot, which, again, the fact that they don't get their own close-up shows that they are like a partnership, a dynamic duo, if you will. Um, and then as the conversation between them and William H. Macy gets a bit more um, involved, you know, they start talking about details of this, the plan and the scheme, the camera starts to slowly zoom in on them, which sort of uh, mimics their... Uh, the tension that they're because they're sort of questioning William H Macy's um, you know uh, legitimacy in hiring them for this uh, for this job so the camera zooming in sort of mimics that um, and it mimics their seriousness you know they're not sure he's being completely serious about about what he's asking them to do um, but they still don't really get their own close-ups. And I really like what uh, Peter Starmore does um, with his character. When he walks, when William H. Macy walks in, they're both sat at a booth. And William H. Macy walks over to them. And he just has his head tilted back on the booth, barely engaging, letting Steve Buscemi do pretty much all the talking. Um, doesn't engage with him. And then when the camera starts to zoom in, because, like I say, they're questioning the seriousness about William H. Macy and what he's doing here, then he leans in, like, onto the table, finally, sort of thing. I, I just really like, he doesn't, he just barely does anything. Like, his sort of uninterested persona and then his, like, leaning forward, engaging with them is, um, it says a lot without doing hardly anything. And like I say, the simple camera work, having close-ups on William H. Macy and only wides or a slow zoom in on the, the two crooks, it, it says a lot as well without doing a whole lot. Like I say, the Coen brothers, masters of the subtle filmmaking. One of the best things about the Coen brothers is their dialogue as well. It's so conversational in the sense that it's not like, you say a line, and then I'll say a line, and then you say a line, and then I'll say a line. A lot of it will be like overlapping lines. Um, and especially, that's especially prevalent with... Um, wow, his name has just escaped my head. I was literally just talking about him. William H. Macy. <laughs> with his character. Um they established really early on that he's like a pushover, um, not very brave. Like when he's talking to his father-in-law uh, uh, during a dinner scene, he keeps going to talk and he keeps getting like snowballed over by his father-in-law. And not He's not listening to him, he's just talking over him. Uh, and then they establish, oh, they also established that when he's talking to um, Peter Stormer and Steve Buscemi. They keep talking over him as well, and then it happens even again when he's at his job trying to sell a car. The guy he's selling it to keeps talking over him as well. He just he's portrayed very early on as like a pushover and a bit spineless, simply just with the way that the dialogue is written for him. So it's just great writing for his character. Again, expert subtlety, right? So, um, William H Macy's on the phone to someone that's like loaned in some money for some cars or something doesn't matter the specifics but the point is he's not done whatever it is by the books he's sort of cheated it and smudged a, a few of the numbers and the guy's calling him up to confront him about that 
and then the shot is done from outside his office so you can see blinds sort of uh, hanging in front of the window and then he's behind the blinds on the phone and the camera the entire shot it's just one shot is just slowly zooming in on him as he sort of starts to run out of excuses when he's talking to this guy and he starts to panic a little bit more so we see those those uh, glimpses of panic uh, become a bit sort of bigger on the screen as it zooms into him but the fact that it's done on the outside of the office shows that it's um, a bit more of a secret conversation and it's uh, it's not something that he wants you know being made public so it's it's a private conversation that he's having uh, so again, it's it's subtle, but it tells the audience exactly what the Coen brothers are trying to get across. That it is, you know, a secret, not done by the books type conversation. Just to comment again on how good Coen brothers dialogue is, right? Nobody in in the film talks the same. And what I mean by that is the, the criminals and the crooks, they're all very, you know, they swear a lot, uh, they use slang, um, it's very, like, like barroom talk, you know, it's, it's not polite, and then all the businessmen, like William H. Macy, or his work associates, or anything, they're all very, like, charming, and oh, it's the darndest thing, and, you know, like, all those Minnesota tropes, and like, oh, yeah, you betcha, and all this, like, nice pleasantry happy-go-lucky sort of charming um thing like his wife is the same and then their son swears at one point and they're straight on it like cut that language out and and everything and then anyone who's like not in his circle has their own what I, what I mean is everyone sort of has their own way of talking and their own sort of like almost dialect um so the the fact that the the Coen brothers I mean this happens in a lot of different films anyway but the Coen brothers have always been very good at it is making sure that each sort of character or group of characters is unique because it's exactly how it would be in real life, you know, in the sense that if you go to like a a, a car garage, those guys are going to talk very differently to, you know, uh, restaurant staff, for example. When uh, Jerry slash William H. Macy uh, gets... Um, sort of rejected in one of his his schemes and his plans to make some money um with his father-in-law and one of his business associates uh, he pre basically presents them a business uh idea and then it doesn't go the way william h macy wants it to so he leaves the building a bit dejected and coen brothers are really good at doing like um you know shots like holding static shots and things um, so we see like a kind of, it's almost a bird's eye view of this uh, car park. There's no other cars in there. It's just, you know, the white snow on the floor, a couple of kind of like uh, snowed in um, flower beds. And there's one set of tire tracks going across the screen and then a set of tire tracks going to his car. And his car is the only thing, other thing in shot initially. And then he slowly sort of walks up from the bottom of frame towards his car. And the fact that he's completely isolated just in that shot uh, reinforces the fact that he's quite alone in, you know, what he's doing. Um, he's sort of running out of options to try and make some money to get him out of his financial jam. So it's it, that holding on that shot where everything, where there's nothing around him and he's completely alone is like that's him being isolated and, you know, lost and like it's a long road to redemption the fact that we're held on this shot for for so long 
like I said, subtle filmmaking. I feel like I'm going to say that a lot during this podcast, but they're just so good at it. There's a really uh, great few sort of establishing shots of Jerry, uh, sorry, William H. Macy, his character's name is Jerry, walking into uh, the house after his wife's been kidnapped and sort of seeing, you know, the, the carnage and things. Um, so most of the uh, the kidnapping scene happens in the bathroom and so there's loads of like debris in there like they kick down the bathroom door the, so the wood's all splintered and there's you know spilled uh, medicine bottles and things from the medicine cabinet all over the floor and, and things like that but where the audience has already seen all these things happen from the kidnapping scene the 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 direction of it of this scene is really clever because they don't spoon feed that all to the audience again so what they do is they just plonk the camera down in the bathroom so we can see all this debris that you know we saw the cause of that debris happen so we just plonk down already in there and it's a really great shot um through the bathroom door where the, i assume it's a bedroom on the other side and then on the other side of that directly opposite that door is the hallway door so then we just see Jerry appear in the hallway, walk through the bedroom into the bathroom. So the audience is given his reaction to the carnage as opposed to seeing from his point of view, looking at all the carnage. Because we, we already saw the carnage happen, so we don't need to see it again. What's important in this moment and in this shot is we see Jerry's reaction to the carnage. So they give us that just by plonking the camera down and holding on that steady shot. It's a... Uh, it's just good. Really cool uh, cuts and close-ups when um, the two crooks are pulled over by a state trooper and then they, um, they end up shooting him in the head. But uh, all the shots initially are sort of how pretty much every shot they've done in the car has been, which is, you know, um, more looking at each other's profiles because a lot of the shots between the two crooks are in the car um, up to this point. And it'll just be sort of looking at each other's profiles as if you're sat in the in the seat next to them, you know. If you're in the passenger seat or the driver's seat, looking at either one. And then after they shoot the cop, the the camera moves for the first time to being from the windscreen side. So like the front of the car. Getting real, real close-ups. Not quite extreme close-ups, but real, real, like just their faces. So then you see sort of Steve Buscemi um, really struggling to come to terms with the fact that this police officer's just been shot in the head and Peter Starmel's character just being really like nonchalant about it. Um, it's just interesting to break up from that, from the profile shots to the, you know, front on close ups uh, after like committing this, this terrible act of violence. It just just reinforces the um the difference between the two characters a bit as well in the sense that peter's a lot more like i said nonchalant about it whereas steve buscemi's although he's a he's a criminal he's not a psychopath <laughs> like peter's character is and then when peter starts chasing down the the two witnesses that drive past in the car as they're trying to dispose of the police officer um a lot of it is done either on Peter's profile as he's driving or from his point of view where he can just see it's like dead at night so it's just you know the only lights are the red tail lights from the other car in front that he's chasing or his headlights on the road in front of it and then the music's sort of tense and dramatic it's not like it's not stereotypical chase scene music but it is you know intense and dramatic 
uh, and then there's a bit of suspense as the taillights disappear and you're like oh have they given him the slip is this going to put you know their criminal plans in jeopardy but as he pulls close to them we see that their car has spun out on the road and flipped over um so he pulls up on it shines his tail his shines his has like headlights i can't even speak shines his headlights on the car that's flipped over and then one of them gets out to run and then he struts out wearing this like trench coat with his gun and um the the taillights of the car that's flipped over are still shining red on him so it gives him this real ominous you know sort of like villain glow you know think of the red lightsabers in star wars kind of thing so it's really uh really just simple but effective use of like lighting you know um and then you know he kills the two witnesses and there's a, a blackout which is always a, an effective tool the framing also of the shots in this film is really good as well like i've spoken about the establishing shots you know like the big wide one at the beginning um the when we finally get introduced to francis mcdormand's uh character i can't remember if she's just a police officer or if she's the sheriff or anything but there's a um sort of pan around the room uh similar to the pan i spoke about in drive you know where we see certain sort of personal effects of the character and things to give us a little taste of who they are um, and it pans over to to them in bed but then we go to their uh, scene where they're eating breakfast together, her uh, her and her husband. And um, then she gets up to, to go leave. And the shot splits then between him sat still at the breakfast table, finishing off his breakfast on the left-hand side of the screen. And then to the right of it is the front door where we see her leave. And there's glass panes on the front door and her police car is just outside of it. And we see her get in and things. So it was just a nice... Um, division of like the two people going about their day without having to cut between different shots just framing it all nicely within that same shot it's just uh i don't know really i don't really know what it says other than they're both carrying on going about their day but is sometimes shots don't need to say a lot they can just look good and that can still be good filmmaking without it saying like you know oh this really brings out the blah 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 you know sometimes it's just good filmmaking by looking nice i really really like the writing of um francis mcdormand's character she's so like she's a obviously a brilliant detective or like a police chief or i can't, I can't remember what her rank is <laughs> but she's obviously very very good at her job but she does it in like such a charming typical minnesota you know kind of way you know, she she's pregnant, so she sort of like waddles about, which, you know, looks very sort of unintimidating, and she's very nice and charming, and oh yeah, you betcha, and all of that, and then she's just so good at, at her job. It's you know, because normally when you see like a a detective investigating a homicide or something, it'll be like. I'm a real hard-nosed, badass detective, and I'm grumpy, and I smoke cigarettes, and you know, where she's just so nice and charming, and then awesome at her job. It's just a great, refreshing uh, character take. Um, and then we move on to uh, William H Macy speaking to his father-in-law and his business associate about the the ransoming, about you know his having his wife being kidnapped and things. 
And again, simple filmmaking, because the the whole part of the conversation is that they're not going to involve the police, you know, uh, they're just going to sort of pay the ransom and, and get her back effectively, right? So it's obviously, again, a private conversation that they don't want to, um, you know, involve too many p people, they don't want to involve the police, etc. So they're, but they're having this conversation in a, a cafe, in a diner. So how they framed it is it's a wide with all three of them in. So where it's a wide, you obviously know that there's some distance between where the camera is and, and where they are. So what they've done to also, um, well, basically what they've done is like dirtied the front of the shot. So the bottom half of the screen is, is dirtied with a few um, sort of chair backs and like a, a, a rail of some sort of like a divider in the, in the, in the cafe and that just sort of dirtying the lower part of the screen with a few um, objects reinforces the fact that the camera's not right up there with them involved in the conversation it's, it's almost like spying on them from a distance so it that reinforces the fact that it's a private conversation so it just plants the seed subconsciously in the audience's mind that it's a private conversation that we're not really supposed to be privy on you know I'm saying you know like you can answer me. <laughs> Again, another great establishing shot of when the crooks go. I'm just going to keep referring to them as the crooks. It's easy and the same, both their names. Um, when they go to their sort of hideout, the shot is... It's of the car driving up to the hideout house, and it's done in one sort of uh, track pan. Um, but the, a lot of the shot is behind trees and things which gives the illusion that it's a hidden place you know because it's the it's their hideout so obviously it would be hidden so just again simple subtle things like that having the car and the house be somewhat masked by a few trees not so masked enough that the audience doesn't know you know what car it is and what building or whatever it is but it's you know just again nice subtle uh way of showing that they're going to a hidden place Oh, this scene just had me in stitches. <laughs> it won't be as funny if I, like, you know, relay it to you, but it's the scene where um, Francis McDormand's uh, speaking to the two prostitutes that the crooks had sex with um, as, like, a lead to try and track them down. And they're just so unhelpful and ditzy and dumb. And, and it, it's all in the dialogue and how she's responding to them because her face just looks so strained, like she's at her wits end trying to get information from these complete dullards but she's still being like oh yeah like very nice and charming as i explained her character is before and it's just, it's classic coen brothers script writing and a great performance from her it just it oh i was creased up it's so funny there's a great uh parallel between um francis mcdormand's character going on a date with well it's not a date She's going for a meal with an old, like, uh, high school or college friend or something. But the dude thinks it's a date. And he's, like, you know, trying it on with her. She shoots him down almost straight away. Um, and then as it goes on, he sort of confesses that he's really lonely. And he's, like, he lost his partner. And he's always liked Francis McDormand and stuff. And the dialogue is so, like, cringy and uncomfortable, but also kind of, funny because it's coen brothers they always do that kind of dark humor thing and then it goes straight to um steve buscemi's character being on a date with someone who gets established through the dialogue is an escort and it's just 
the I really like the parallel between the two kind of like in quotation marks dates you know because they're both complete train wrecks for different reasons and it's just classic coen brothers dialogue they're they're one of the best writers of of dialogue and characters and sort of exposing the characters uh, within the dialogue and they also don't tend to write perfect characters they always tend to write you know slightly flawed individuals which just makes for a a more uh, refreshing interesting character because no one's perfect you know that's that's a classic expression that i'm sure you've heard before they do something really interesting with the um father-in-law character as well so there's been a few scenes where especially when he's building up to you know tell a lie or cover his tracks where we see william h macy talking to himself you know like rehearsing his lines kind of thing um like before he calls the father-in-law to tell him that she's been kidnapped he's going over it like oh no something's terrible has happened and you know he tries it with different inflections and things and it reinforces what we know about him as you know already being a bit sort of like nervous and unsure of himself like i said before he gets spoken over a lot in conversations and interrupted and things like that and then through a lot of the film um the father-in-law character has been set up as a sort of you know real um like alpha male within the family unit and you know within this business world and things you know he's a real sort of takes no bullshit uh, you know, just one of those typical kind of characters. But then when he's driving to the exchange to, to give the ransom money over for his daughter, we see him sat behind the wheel talking to himself as well, saying, where's my daughter, you punk? And, you know, sort of going over his lines and going over what he's going to say. So it just, it sort of takes him down a peg and humanizes him. So it's a, a really interesting thing to write in a script for a character to do because it humanizes him from being this you know like alpha i'll take no crap kind of character into being someone that you know does have worries and concerns and does have to sort of uh like big themselves up and, and give themselves some confidence if you see what i mean this might be the shortest podcast i've done so far but hey you know what it's all right to do that every now and then they don't all need to be an hour long not that there isn't so many great things to talk about in this movie, but, you know, it's an hour and a half movie. It's also a lot of the beauty of this movie is in the intricacies and the nuances of the dialogue and the characters and things. So those things are probably better um, viewed by the viewer. Viewed by the viewer. What a great sentence. Um, really insightful, Luke. Thanks. Um yeah, so, you know, there's there's certain things that it's just, it's a little bit harder to talk about in a podcast format. Um, maybe one day when I um, can start incorporating, like, YouTube clips and stuff to it, it might be a little bit easier. But either way, um, so, and plus of it, you know, a lot of it as well will just be, like, great shots that don't really need unpacking, you know. Um, it's just, it's just good film uh, filmmaking and, and shots that I don't really need to waffle on about um, but there's that scene where uh, Steve Buscemi goes back to the hideout um, after having recovered the money been shot in the face um, he's covered in blood and he's talking through his charts like this because obviously he doesn't want to move his face too much because he's been shot and then again the the wonderful Peter Stalmore, um Stormar Starmore, Stribberger, either way, great actor. Um, 
who's barely had any lines of dialogue throughout this film, but that's just how his character is. Um, he's very quiet and intimidating by just staring expressionlessly at people. And um, so Steve has a little bit of an outburst about um, who's going to take the car after they've got the money and things. And there's a a great shot. I, I don't really know how to explain why it's tense, but Steve leaves the the hideout house and he's walking over to the car and then over his shoulder we can see the you know the front door to the house that he's just left and then as he's walking out peter then runs out with an axe and swings it and steve only just turns around in time to let out a scream as he's it's too late to defend himself and the axe comes down on him and it cuts to the next scene um but there's something sort of so tense about the fact that it's just done in that one shot where so we see steve walking and then we see him run out after him and then swing the axe the fact that there's no cuts away in between that sort of makes it feel like if you're in steve's shoes you can't escape it like it's coming for you no matter what whereas i feel like maybe if that shot was broken up by cuts it would be less like oh my god oh oh shit oh damn he's been hit with an axe do you know what I mean? You get that kind of like, oh, 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 oh no, oh no, kind of thing. I can't think how else to explain it other than in how you react to it. Um, but that's kind of the beauty of, of that shot. And we get a great uh, example of building suspension and, and suspense, suspense, not suspension. <laughs> I was going to say tension and suspense at the same time. <laughs> So it's building suspense and tension, not suspension, uh, with the soundscape and the sort of the wide uh, shots and the tracking shots. So basically in this one, uh, Frances McDormand is pulled up to the hideout. She's found it by tracking down the car. And a lot of the shots on her will be sort of wide, you know, taking in the fact that it's a very isolated area. Um and then in the background, we can just hear what sounds kind of like um, almost like a chainsaw or a strimmer, you know, uh, which it builds as she gets closer to the house. It builds and that just adds the uh, the tension, not the suspension. So the tension keeps building and the noise keeps increasing as she gets round to the back of the hideout, um, you know, discovering the source of the noise um, and we don't see it from an audience uh, point of view all the shots will either just be on her or you know her with a lot of scenery in the background but not the source of the noise so again because of that the or, or like the fear of the unknown thing the tension is raised uh, and then we see a glimpse of someone who we can't quite make out but because as an audience we've been following the story we should know who it is but she doesn't know who it is so he's you know, hidden by trees and, and bushes and things. But there's a massive, like, spray of red um, on the on the floor. So you're sort of like, what the hell is happening here? And then in classic Coen Brothers dark humor style, she calls out, like, hands up, police. But because of the sound of this uh, machine that's, you know, grinding, like I said, it sounds like a chainsaw or a strimmer type thing, um, the guy can't, Basically, what he's doing is he's grinding up Steve Buscemi into this, like, grinder or wood trimmer type thing. So that's why all the blood is sprayed out all over the floor. 
Um, so he's doing that. She's calling out, hands up, police, and he can't hear her over the machine. So she sort of has to call out a few times, pointing a gun at him. So it's that classic Coen Brothers-like dark humor there, um, which you know makes what would otherwise be a horrific scene have a slight, you know, comedic sort of uh, value to it, which just makes it a little bit more easily digestible for an audience member, you know. Then he runs out onto the frozen lake and she tags him in the back of her thigh um, with a little, I think it's like a 38 snub nose revolver or something. Tags him in the back of the thigh. He collapses to the ground and then there's a great shot, a real wide shot of him lying on the floor sort of left of frame and she comes right of frame and, you know, the sort of bottom half of the screen is just um, more or less the frozen lake and then on the top half of the screen on the left you've got the skyline and uh, on the right side of it is the tree line that she's come out of onto the lake and it's just a real beautiful picturesque sh uh, shot you know like if it wasn't for the fact that someone's just been shot with a gun on it it would make a lovely postcard you know <laughs> i meant to comment on this earlier as well earlier on in the film because they're in the the county of or city or town or whatever it is of brainerd and on you know how most cities or whatever will have like a oh welcome to wherever you are uh, type sign. Their one is this giant lumberjack who's uh, some sort of celebrity cult hero or something uh, for the town. And the first time we see him, it's just like a, it's quite early on in the film. It's like a big um, wide shot panning down on it and it looks all pleasant. And then the second or third time you see him is after some of the darker things have started to happen in the movie and it's at night and it's looking up at him and he's only illuminated by this kind of spotlight below him which creates a sort of shadow pattern on his face where he looks really really scary and um what come over i just said he's a lumberjack or not but so he is a lumberjack and he's got like this uh he's holding an axe over his shoulder so then right at the end after peter starmore has been caught by francis mcdormand uh, he's you know they're driving in the squad car back and they pass the lumberjack sign and then you kind of get the uh the parallel between you know him having just killed steve buscemi with an axe and chopped him up and put him in a wood chipper and this giant towering ominous looking lumberjack statue it's just a weird kind of parallel that they draw and then the shot sort of moves to um, mimicking like the opening. You know, I said there was like mostly white on the screen because of the snow and a uh, a car moving towards the screen from the distance. Except this time, it's uh, several police cars and an ambulance um, there to help Francis McDormand with um, Soko Pete. Um, and then a few other plot lines get wrapped up, like. Um, William H. Macy gets arrested and, and things and you get to see uh, Francis McDormand go back to her husband and they have a conversation that sort of just, you know, suggests that life moves on for them. Like this was just a couple of days in their life, you know, of her being a, a police chief and, and that kind of thing. Um, and that's very typical of the Coen brothers. They do tend to, you know, it's not like here's a beginning, middle and end of a story it's most of their films do tend to just be like here's a week or so within a wider story that we're not going to show you you know and sometimes their movies will just end ambiguously um they're so unique 
if you if you've never really dabbled into the Coen Brothers, I really would recommend it. You know, anything from Fargo to um, Miller's Crossing or um, oh, what's the Josh Brolin one? No Country for Old Men. Great movie. Maybe one day I'll cover that. Um, but they're fantastic. This movie's fantastic. It's just they are. I don't know why I picked it. I think I picked it because I was struggling to um, to choose a film to talk about this week. You know, there's so many, so many good ones to choose, and I was just struggling to narrow it down. And I landed on this one, um, sort of forgetting that so much of what the Coen Brothers do are it's so sort of subtle, and in the dialogue or in the characters and in the acting um, that. There's been so many of their films that I've watched where I'm like, why do I like this film? I know I like this film, but I don't know why I like this film. They they stand on their own in, in cinema, um, and they're fantastic. So yeah, that's this podcast. Um, uh, there's no point me rambling on to try and get to like the 40-minute mark or whatever. Um, it's just, this is a short one for you this week. So it is what it is, but I hope you enjoyed it, and... Um, Yeah, we'll be back for something next week. Goodbye.